Welcome back to the Wild at Heart podcast. I'm your host, Emily Priestley. I am a dog behavior consultant who specializes in herding breed dogs who struggle in their pet homes. On the podcast, we dive into the training universe and talk to some of the leading experts in our field. Today, I'm talking to Christy Benson. Christy has been working with dogs and in dog rescue since 2007. She is an honors graduate of the Academy for Dog Trainers. After graduation, she was hired by the Academy, where she acts as a student mentor, coach, and runs special projects for the Academy. Christy also enjoys reaching out to dog owners through her writing. Her blog was named one of the top 50 dog blogs in 2016, and you can find all of her blogs and her courses at christybenson.com. She is also a co-host of the Under the Bus series with Jean Donaldson, Lisa Skavinsky, and myself. You can find that through the Academy for Dog Trainers Facebook page or on YouTube. I sat down with Christy to talk about sled dogs. I really hope you enjoy it. I had the pleasure of working with some ex-sled dogs at the BCSPCA, and Christy really is an expert on the subject. This episode is brought to you by my new book, Urban Sheepdog. This is a user manual designed for anyone out there who has a herding breed dog living in a pet home. Most of my clients are healers and border collies and other herders who are struggling to fit into their new role of non-working dogs. The book will be available on Amazon very soon, so if you're interested, follow me on social media at Wild at Heart Dogs to be notified when the book is ready. Without further ado, here is my friend and fantastic colleague, Christy. I am here with Christy Benson, who is somebody I very much look up to and um, has a lot of experience in an area that I don't know a lot about and that I also find fascinating, and that is the world of sled dogs. And we're going to be talking all about what these dogs are and what to expect and just really diving into exactly what they are. Because Christy, I think, um, I know personally, I've been guilty of this. I think that a lot of us just have this idea that a sled dog is a husky or like we think about Balto or like this sort of character, this sort of cartoon dog that's a hero and they can run and run and run. And I I think there's a lot more under the hood there. And that's what we're going to be diving into. So. you know, we talk about them and we'll probably refer to them in this podcast as sleddies, which is sort of our endearing nickname for these dogs that come from a background of, um, of you know, we're and we're also going to talk about their backgrounds, but they come from a background of being used for sledding. <laughs> so let's start right. us off by giving us an idea of just exactly what a sled dog is, or when we talk about a sleddy, what are, what are we talking about? Yeah, so I'd say a sl- when I say sleddy, I would be referring to the types of dogs that come from competitive or recreational mushers dog yards. So dogs that are used for traction sports, you know, they pull sleds, they pull ski drawers, they <clears throat> they're used for traction. So those are kind of um, usually not purebred dogs. Um, they're dogs that are like purpose bred for this sport. Um, but that that doesn't encompass all sled dogs. There are, you know, there are other types of sled dogs there. Um, some people do use purebred dogs in dog sledding. Um, they kind of have their own strains typically, like there's there's strains of Siberian Huskies that are used to actually pull sleds. Um, they don't look like show Siberians mostly. <laughs> um, although I think there used to be one musher who did have a foot in both worlds. Maybe there's more. I haven't been in the sled dog world for a number of years now. So, you know, I'm sort of casting back thinking about this, but um, 
there there was at least one musher I can think of who had Siberians who she used both to, you know, run in races and also showed them. And I don't know how successful she was in the show world. That That is totally not my realm. So I guess if you're like, what's a sled dog? That's like, there are going to be dozens of answers. It can be a dog that is happens to pull in harness, a dog that's bred to pull in harness. And the breeds that we think of typically are going to be like Siberian Huskies. Um, Malamutes, I'm pretty sure, were bred to pull um, in a different situation. They were bred to pull across sort of um, ice and tundra environments. So they have a different configuration in front of the sled. Um, and then you have like other dogs, the dogs that are purpose bred um, for the sport, you know, for sled dog sports. Um, and even those are very, very uh, variable. You know, there's different types of sled dog sports. Some people run their dogs in sprint races that are very, very short, just a few miles. So those dogs tend to be huge and fast and very short coated. Um, and then we have people who run you know, their dogs in something like the Iditarod, which is, you know, a thousand miles or whatever, right? So those dogs are not the same as dogs who are sprinters typically, right? And also mushers do not sort of buy into um, the purebred mythology, the purebred sort of idea that we need to close the stud book and keep bloodlines pure. That's a little, I mean, for many of the mushers that I've met, that's kind of like a, it's either a no big deal or it's a bit of an anathema. Like, why would we not want to bring in sort of breeding that, that, that might improve our dogs? So sled dogs are not purebreds typically. Um, and that's kind of, there's, there's not a desire to do that. Um, so then we, if we get into the sort of the realm of, of dogs who are bred to, you know, that are sleddies, what we would call sleddies, dogs who are bred to, to pull in, a, you know, and, and live in a musher's dog yard, um, they tend to be a type of dog called Alaskan Husky, um, which I think is, is pretty variable within itself, but it's, you know, it uh, apparently can trace its roots back to Athabascan village dogs in Alaska, um, so pre-contact, um, you know, dogs who were sort of bred to to run on trap lines and then were used for races in, you know, in spring festivals when the trapping season was done. And, um, but then people also would bring in other sort of types and breeds of dogs. There's a lot of hounds that are bred in. Um, you've seen my dog Timber. He's uh, a German short hair pointer, uh, Alaskan Husky mix, which is, you know, relatively common. Um, but there's also other types of pointers and some other types of hounds. And one of my dogs has greyhound mixed in with her. So, you know, there's it's sort of like anything that that's going to, you know, allow this dog to be a competitive athlete. Yeah. And I, I was actually, I mean, I think from, um, again, my experience with sleddies or sled dogs was, is very limited, um, in that I worked with some of them in shelter after they were removed from a, a property where they had been used, used for, uh, I, you know, they were sled dogs <laughs> that came off of a property. Um, right. and I think that if most people and myself included, if you saw one walking down the street, certainly the ones that we saw come from that property, you wouldn't think of them as a sled dog. You might not look at them. And again, they're, they're, they weren't heavy coated. Some of them actually had very, uh, smooth, very like fine coats. Um, they weren't what we would think about for when we imagine the sort of character of a dog who is designed to like run through snow and like pull a sled. They were very athletic, very um, thin and they certainly just did not, they looked like a mixed breed dog. Yeah. Um, and a lot of those, um, you know, they did, they had some Husky, but they also had hound, um, apparently some Saluki and things like that bred into them. Um, but yeah. then they had also been bred 
by the owner for, you know, he, he had been breeding those lines of his own and tweaking them as he had gone on. So, um, but they certainly, I think, were, are very, um, they can be very deceiving if somebody saw some of them right off the bat. And like you said, some of them, you know, they do look like pointer mixes and things like that. So guide yeah. us through the various, um, like when we were talking before we started recording a few days ago, we were talking about um, some of the things that these dogs are used for. Certainly what I'm familiar with is them being used for like recreation, like, like tourist Tourists. attractions. Right. Yeah. Um, and that certainly, if you live in British Columbia, like things like that have hit the news over the last like decade and a half where, um, dogs have been used, um, you know, for tourists to go and you can, of course, why wouldn't you want to, you know, run, by, let, be pulled by, um, sled dogs. It sounds like a lot of fun, but then you were talking about some of the races that happen. And I know like the Iditarod is like the big one, but I was actually floored to find out just how far some of these dogs are running. So can you guide us through some of the, the difference in, in terms of what they would be used for? Um, and, you know, obviously being used for, uh, tourist attraction versus being like running in the Iditarod, probably two very different things. So can you help me understand sort of what, what we would be looking at that these dogs would be doing day to day? Right. <clears throat> so I guess uh, uh, the three sort of types of races that I'm familiar-ish with are going to be the, the long distance races. Um, and in North America, that's the Iditarod and the Yukon Quest. And I can't actually remember how long they are, but I think they're in the sort of neighborhood of a thousand miles. Um, we should fact check that. <laughs> I will definitely. But anyway, multi-day, you know, like I think it's, it's, it, they shave time off every year, but it, you know, it's, it's days and days and days that these dogs are running. Um, they tend, these dogs tend to be a little bit heavier coated. And that's, I think in part because they are going a little bit more slow and by heavier coated, I mean, heavier coated than the, the, you know, the hound coat that you were talking about, nothing like a Malamute or even, you know, a show Siberian. Those coats are, are way too heavy for a sled dog because they can't disperse heat. So sled dogs are like these in, in phenomenal athletes and they create a ton of heat in their bodies as they pull, you know, and pulling is, is exceptionally hard work, right? So they're pulling and they're like running flat out and pulling. So they're, 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 they're generating a lot of heat and it needs to disperse. So that, that's the reason why their coats tend to be um, quite a bit smaller than you'd expect if you're thinking like, you know, Balto in the Tundra or whatever. Um, and those, there are still dogs like that, that, that do pull in front of, you know, um, flat sleds in the Arctic and they are heavier coated, but they go quite a bit more slowly. Right. <laughs> They're not racing typically. Um, so there's the long distance races and, and I believe there's quite a bit of specialization. So kennels that do that type of race will do only like that type of race and then maybe a mid distance race like they're they're probably not also going to do the super fast sprint type races because like you said the dogs are they there's there's been specialization enough that those dogs probably don't overlap <clears throat> um but those races are you know rare and and they only happen twice a year um and uh they happen to get, get a lot of um sort of press just because they're so phenomenal um but also because you know there's welfare issues which i know we're we're going to touch on a little bit with those races that i think is coming up more and more in the sort of the zeitgeist of of the dog owning public now um so there's that type of race and there's a mid-distance types of races um some of those are going to be like a single race over a number of days or 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 you know that that's say 300 miles something like that so the musher will will leave and then i 
there's sometimes they camp out on the trail or they there'll be a stopping point where they camp you know same as on the Iditarod where they have to stay with their dogs and cook meals for them um, and sleep with their their dogs um, and then they you know continue the race there's and in the sort of the mid distance sort of maybe genre there's also stage races where um you go to a, a you know like a place and then you do one leg of a race that might be 30 miles and then you drive to a new town and do another leg of the race that might be 20 miles or 40 miles or whatever um so you you do like six different stages and and at the end you know they can com they compile all the time and and the winner is the person who won all the you know got the the, the best time when, at all the legs <clears throat> and then there's sprint races which i am less familiar with even though i have actually raced in some oh, um they're short goodness. yeah they're short like short and i think they're anywhere between you know like 15 miles to, to some i believe there's even races that are very very short that have just super speedy dogs you know that just go <laughs> uh, so and i know there's also a ton of other sled dog sports that i think are a lot more accessible to like regular uh joe humans um like ski drawing races People do canicross, which is running, um, and then there's um, you can you know put put a sled dog in front of a bike. Um, so there's other things like that that are we used to have these big scooters that we would run our dogs with. Um, so there's lots of stuff like that, and I assume there's racing and community and stuff built around those as well. Um, and I I think that there's probably sort of classes of people in those. Some people are very competitive and they go and they buy dogs that are you know, purposely bred for this exact thing. And some people just get into it because they adopt a sled dog um, and are like, wow, what am I going to do with this dog? <laughs> <laughs> and they need to pull. Um, and so they get into it. And it's it's actually, I think you touched on this. It's super, super fun to be pulled around by a dog or by a series of dogs. Like there's something just intrinsically glorious about it. So people get into it and I think they really get into it. Um, and before I forget, because we keep talking about this difference between our image of sled dogs from Disney movies and real sled dogs, not real sled dogs. Those are real sled dogs too, <laughs> but sleddies. Sleddies typically pull on a groomed trail. So sometimes right. and they even might have booties to protect their feet in certain snow conditions. Sometimes they'll wear coats that we call blankets that you know keep them warm if it's too cold. <laughs> um, so they're not like charging through the tundra uh, up to their sort of, um, jowls in snow they are like the lamborghinis of of the snow world <laughs> and i do i think it's very attractive in so many ways like just being out with a dog doing something there is um um robin who is uh an academy for dog trainers ctc i i'm friends with her on facebook and i get to see a lot of um her she does just that she goes out on groom trails and you know i i personally i love it i love being outside with my dogs i love um having them be like you know exhausted and muddy and wet and just enjoying their lives and so i see like even when you're talking about you know some of these races the idea of like camping with my dog and being out there and like just the whole thing there is a romantic side to it for sure so i can see why um you know why wouldn't you as a tourist want to go and um and try that out for sure um so when we talk about these dogs and you know i 
I deal with a lot of dogs or I'm in the like sort of the world of a lot of dogs who are athletes who do competitive sports, who do, um, you know, herding and trialing and things like that. But we're talking about a whole, this is a ne- the next level when we're talking about a thousand miles, I can't even really wrap my head around what that must be like. So when we're talking about getting them ready, what would the, what would their world look like? Like, how would you even prepare a dog for something like a thousand mile race when we're trying to, you know, I can't even imagine, I know the work that goes into a a small, you know, agility trial, let alone a thousand miles, what would their day-to-day life look like? So there, um, there's a ton of conditioning, sort of athletic conditioning that goes into those. I mean, the first thing obviously is breeding. They, these dogs are absolutely bred, not you know, trained. <laughs> so they're, <clears throat> they're bred to be fantastic athletes. I, I, I mean, I know s- sled dog people sort of exaggerate. So we'll, the next two things we can take with a potential grain of salt, but this is kind of one of the things that we'd hear in the sled dog world is that there's, there's literally no other athlete that is, there's no other animal that's as good of an athlete as a sled dog, just because they're the amount of work that they have to do. Um, and then the other thing that I heard, and again, audience, please (laughs) check me, is that on the Iditarod, some of those dogs who might be 50, 40 pounds would eat as many as 10,000 calories a day. So which is, if you can imagine being that small and needing, so that's just their outlay, right? Um, Typically, um, in my memory, sled dogs get the summer off, which means they are left chained in a dog yard. all day every day and then come fall when the temperature starts to get cool enough for them to safely start to run they start to the the dog musher will start to train them um and by train i mean condition they start to condition them athletically so they might be in front of a quad they'll hook up you know however many dogs it might be i don't know five it might be 20 um and then they'll start running on the road you know so they'll start off at a reasonable amount for you know for their dogs and for what type of racing that they're doing um and then they'll they'll increase that as needed and there's i mean there's going to be people who adhere very strongly to a bunch it's probably like running a marathon should you do sprints should you know should you be doing um you know, long distance and then short distance, all people have all of these ideas. And then there's like the supplements and, you know, everything. So, but the big thing is that they're going to be conditioning the dogs athletically, the mushers will be. Um, And then as soon as the conditions are places, um, mushers don't ever get onto snow until they start racing, essentially, because they're somewhere where there's not a good enough snow base for there to be a trail, you know, put in um, until they start to drive off and, and, go to races but their dogs are still conditioned because they've been running like on roads or on trails or something um in front of a quad or in front of a wheeled rig you know you can get these sort of the specialty wheeled rigs that people can attach dogs to in front on a gang line typically you know the same setup as, as in a race um to get the dogs ready some people also swim their dogs in the summer but i don't think that's as typical as giving them the summer sort of off and then starting to train when the temperatures are are cool enough all right. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it, it, when I think about just the amount of um, work that must go into it, it is like, br- I can see why breeding would be important as well. And just, yeah. you know, and the people who do this are, are really into it in a way that, and maybe agility people are like this too. I don't have a good sense, but it's like, 
it's like the biggest thing in their life. You know, it's really expensive. The dogs are really expensive. The upkeep is really expensive. They have to, you know, they're, they're taking time off work They're It's essentially th their entire lives. And it, once you start conditioning your dogs, you're doing it probably like five days a week or, you know, you know what I'm saying? It's like, it's a lot. And it, once you start getting up there in distance, it's a couple hours or more, you know, so every day or two. <laughs> so it is not a small commitment. And the people who do it, it's not just like, oh, yeah, I have this hobby. You know, it's like that's their thing. And also when so if you have an agility dog, you might have one, two, three dogs that you are training and working with. But when we're talking about, um, you, you know, you're a musher and you have sled dogs, how many could you expect that you might have? Um, I think probably the typical rec recreational musher yard um, would be somewhere in the neighborhood of like, I don't know, 10 to 25 dogs um, with racing kennels. I think we're getting more than that. Um, 50, 60, some of the sort of the big names and people who breed and sell a lot of dogs, it's going to be into the hundreds. Yeah. Wow. So let's talk a bit about um, their day-to-day -day life. So when I picture the sled dogs that I worked with, um, they, I can imagine exactly where they came from and they were essentially chained to a doghouse. Um, and that's where they spent their days and nights. Um, what would the typical sort of setup be in terms of housing, you know, your 10 to 20, um, dogs? So, um, there's going to be a lot of variability, but a dog yard is very typical of the type that you're talking about. So there's going to be a, a, a place where all the dogs are. It may or may not be fenced. Um, there's going to be dog houses. In Dog houses are going to be insulated, especially if it gets colder. Um, and they're going to be sort of built in such a way that the dogs can always get out of the wind. Um, in other places, you know, if, if somebody is struggling economically, but still has a bunch of dogs, they might be using something like a barrel or, you know, something that's a little bit less uh, comfortable for the dog. Um, typically, they're they're chained up on swivels. So there's a post that comes out of the ground about, I don't know, three or four feet. Um, and then into that post is set uh, a crooked uh, pole. And, and the pole has a <clears throat> a piece that comes off of it at the top at um, sort of the parallel to the ground. And then the chain is attached to that, which means that the dogs can circle completely. Okay. And that pole will just spin. The pole spins inside the post, um, which keeps, you know, which allows the dog to do a circle. So if you have, if you've ever seen a sled dog yard like this, you come in and if, if there's sort of something exciting happening, all of the dogs will be out of their houses and just circling. It's just all of this, this big mess of circling dogs. And they, they, typically jump up on top of their houses and 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 come back down and circle. Sometimes they can touch and interact with the dogs um, on all sides of them, you know, so they can have sort of interactions with the dogs that are are are, you know, left, right and front and back, um, but not always. And sometimes if there's too much play in the chain, that can be bad. If the dogs fight, they are typically more squabbly than, you know, other dogs. <laughs> so if they fight, it can be dangerous, but yeah, so that's what a dog yard would look like. It's it's almost like a weird little housing development, <clears throat> you know, with a bunch of 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 houses and and dogs. Um, they're fed there, stay there in the summer. It, my experience is that it's relatively rare for for the dogs to get off the chains in the summer at all. So they will be chained up for months on end. Yeah. Okay. 
So when we talk about um, them, they, they are a little bit more squabbly than the average dog or than what we would, you know, typically think about what else can we expect? So I remember when we got them into shelter, these dogs had never, you know, they hadn't been housed the way that we were going to house them. And one of the major concerns was um, escape attempts, that they would be able to jump yeah. out of a kennel. And these are obviously kennels in an SPCA shelter that are designed to house dogs and that the average dog does not jump out of. So um, that was one of the concerns that the dogs would be able to go out over the top and they had to be kept in um, specific runs that had, you know, roofs on them to prevent them from right. happening. So yeah. when you think about like sort of the typical, you know, we, we're going to go to the encyclopedia, we're going to look up um, sleddies. What what would you sort of present as being the most, um, you know, broad representation of what you could expect? Yeah, so they definitely do like to escape. So I think... First up, um, and not all of them, but I think something that characterizes many of them is independence. So they they are independent thinkers. They like being out somewhere on their own. They like traveling. They like heading away from you. You know, they're bonded to other dogs and people, um, but they're not going to be the type to hang, like hang around the farm. So <clears throat> we have some farm dogs who, you know, we, we can just hang out outside with them and they just hang around the farm. And that is not going to be typical of a young sled dog or a young husky. They're like, I'm I'm gone, I'm out of here. And not only are they sort of interested in, in sort of ex exploring their worlds on their own, they don't need anyone else's input. Um, they're so athletic that they can travel for many miles. If they're not pulling, they can easily travel, you know, 10 miles in, in, in almost no time at all, right? Um, so they're independent. Um, they are definitely escape artists. They can be for sure. Um, so I think they're quite bright in in that domain. They they, they will dig. They love digging. <laughs> they will go. So they won't just go over a fence. They will go under it. So they're motivated to leave for sure. That would be an important characteristic that you would want to keep in in sort of your mind if you were new to having a sled dog. Um, they are squabbly. Um, they. And by that, I mean, they sort of, they settle social disputes by getting into dog fights more quickly than other breeds might do that. You know, another breed might walk away or choose to sort of snarl. Um, sled dogs are, in my experience, much more likely to be like, oh, actually it's on. Um, and then they, they, they fight. Um, they're not worse fights than any other breed. You know, I don't think they have a, a hard mouth or bad ABI. It, uh, you know, outside of the normal sort of um, spread of, of dogs, um, but they are squabbly. So if you have multiple sled dogs, the likelihood that you will experience a, a non-injurious or a minorly injurious squabble is relatively high. Um, okay. Yeah. Um, what about should, yeah. um, cats? We've got a cat in the background. So for yeah, some reason they, in my mind, when I'm thinking about them, I want to, I want to assume, and this is an assumption that they would be um, prey driven. Is that something that is they common? Are. Yeah, they're definitely predatory towards small animals and big animals. <laughs> <laughs> for sure <laughs> says, says so, you who has a farm with lots of animals yeah <laughs> and, and a slutty yeah yeah so they definitely are not i i would say not safe with cats until proven otherwise um and definitely they readily hunt and eat you know small game no problem they will do that um if they they will chase wildlife 
uh, readily. They will chase livestock readily. Um, they certainly can be trained. So all of my sled dogs ended up getting trained to be um, fine around our cattle. Um, not all of the sled dogs who have passed through my life were uh, safe around cats. Right. But we okay. did work with, you know, we had the sled dogs who ended up staying with us, um, who didn't go through sort of the rescue process that we had. Um, and, you know, we're, we're fine with cats. We ended up training them inside. <clears throat> I would definitely not trust the sled dogs, even that if they were good with cats inside, I wouldn't trust them with cats outside. Okay. Wow. So they, when, when we talk about rescue, so guide us through how these dogs would come to be into rescue. So, um, there they are, they're with a musher, they are on the property and in like, what circumstances would you see these dogs come through a rescue? Um, so I, I would say a lot of dogs age out of running. Um, so because the type of work that these dogs are doing is, is so phenomenally athletic, they can't do it until they're 10, 15, you know, I mean, and they, they're a, not a short lived breed. They're a long lived breed. They can easily live 12, 13, 14. <clears throat> um, so, but that they can only race some of the uh, sort of elite athletes. I think, you know, they really are only racing until they're six or even younger. So they age out and then mushers have this conundrum. They have dogs, many dogs who are five, six, seven, eight years old and they need those houses for the next generation. They're essentially breeding every year or acquiring dogs every year so that they continue to have young dogs to race. So there's a lot of um, dogs that age out of recreational mushing and definitely competitive sled dog sports. Um, that's definitely the, the vast majority of dogs that, that we got were in that category, um, but also uh, mushers readily, many mushers readily cull younger dogs if they aren't performing. Um, so most dogs that are bred to be sled dogs as puppies are not going to be race quality. So if they don't show sort of the right stuff early on, um, then mushers will be sort of looking to get used to them. And there is also a ton of accidental litters out of sled dogs. So because of the cost and because various factors, most sled dogs in in both recreational yards, actually, I'd say, and competitive yards are intact. They're kept in yards on chains. The chains can break. There's, so there's a lot of accidental litters. Um, and those litters, therefore, produce dogs, and the dogs need somewhere to go if they're not going to be cold. Wow. Okay. So they, I, I've, you know, I, I guess since I worked with them, I joined some Facebook pages and things like that that um put me a little bit more into i guess the the world of see, like just seeing some of the posts of these dogs that are coming up for adoption and rescues and stuff so i certainly see more of them coming into rescues now than i think i did before probably because i'm just paying more attention now or i see them because i'm in those groups and things like that um but it certainly seems like there are a lot um and so when they go now and we saw this in the shelter right they come into shelter they actually were um, unfortunately, very difficult to adopt the ones that we had in shelter. And some of them got adopted very quickly. Some of them didn't. And some of them stayed in care for around a year um, waiting for their home. And that was really no fault of their own. I think it's just there was a lot of factors there that made it that they they just weren't dogs who were 
um, scooped up by the average family very quickly. So um, what could you expect if you were an adopter? And again, I know we're kind of generalizing here because there are so many different sort of variations and even breeds and breeding and everything. Um, But what would you see typically from dogs, you know, coming into rescue and transitioning into a home? What could you expect as the average adopter? I think if you find dogs and dog behavior fascinating and hilarious, then sled dogs would be good for you. You know, if if you can just appreciate their, their, they're like good examples of dogs, you know, they, they, and they're so, they're so independent. And again, I'm generalizing, but they're so independent and funny and they really have a ton of character. Um, you know, they're not necessarily the easiest dogs. If you're looking for an easy dog that you just take for a little leash walk um, and then they'll s- snuggle up, no problem, then this may not be the dog for you. Although some sled dogs are like that. Um, but if if you are just like like looking at your dog and being like, wow, look at my dog, dog, you know, <laughs> they're very much, they will scratch that itch. <laughs> so um, they are athletic, but I think unlike some other dogs, like like the type of dogs that you deal with, you know, um, cattle dogs, they are, they can really turn themselves off quite easily. And I think that relates to the summers off. This is my guess. Now, now I'm just like wandering into my own thinking, but, um, they, like they need to be able to, to, to sort of wind themselves down and hang out on a chain for months. Right. right. So dogs who can't handle that kind of enforced downtime are, are going to be cold, to be honest. Like, I mean, they're just not going to last as a sled dog typically. Right. And they're definitely not going to be bred. So, you know, they they sort of need to be able to wind up when you need them to and wind down um, and, and, and just be kind of like, well, here I am about it. So, so I think that's a nice factor about them. Um, I, I think the things to sort of like pull back and ask yourself, can you really handle this or is going to be the squabbly? If you can handle a little bit of dog dog you know normal safe social conflict this might not be the dog for you (laughs) and they are hairy they are hairy even the short-coated ones are pretty hairy so i mean they shed quite a bit um and if if you're in and out a lot they can shed seasonally which is better but that doesn't describe (laughs) and this is coming from someone like um your dog you have some pretty hairy dogs so if you were ranking them on this on a scale of one to hairy and you're putting them in the hairy category they're um, they're not like german shepherd or golden hairy but they are they're pretty hairy they're hairier than you'd expect if you just look at them you know you're like well that just looks like a mongrel well (laughs) she's a hairy mongrel (laughs) (laughs) who is going to escape and um, kill your neighbor's chickens by the sounds yes so they they do like to escape for sure um but but they also are i i think they're great pets if it's a good match and that's one of the things when we had a rescue i spent a ton of time working on finding a good match so a lot of people would come in and they'd be like i want to adopt a mythological sled dog and 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 then we'd pick it apart do you actually want a sled dog or do you just want the myth the myth the legend the balto yeah. do you want balto <laughs> <laughs> um yeah and so when we talk about you know um one thing that i have heard and i don't know where i even got this information so again maybe you can fact check me is this concept that they have to be kept outside or that i've heard it like sort of proposed that they have to stay outside because they're working dogs and we do see this um again i work with a lot of um you know, not working 
um, herding dogs, but certainly um, we, you know, a lot of border collies and things like that. And one of the things that we hear from from the working crowd is that they have to be kept in outdoor kennels. They can't be inside. They're not family pets. They have to be kept outside to do their job. So they are kept um, in similar type situations and that a lot of these working dogs are kept in outdoor kennels. Um, but is it is there truth to the saying that they have to be kept away from the house or is that just a convenience something that is convenient in that now we have an excuse to keep them outside yeah as far as i know that there has not been research on that topic like so if you want to look i i mean if you if you if we take a classless led dog that could reasonably stay in the house so say a team of four that's sprint racing or somebody who's doing canicross or, or, you know, competitive ski drawing. Um, I'm, I, I would be strongly surprised <laughs> if most of those people didn't keep those dogs in their houses. All right. You know, because they can, right. There's not 20 dogs, which is hard right. to house in your house. Trust me. I've tried. <laughs> That's but, another podcast. Yeah. <laughs> but say you have eight dogs and they can comfortably live in your house. Um, I would say most people probably do do that um, without cutting back on their winning edge. So I think there's two questions. Does keeping them outside behaviorally or coat wise or cold adaption wise somehow give you an edge that I, I'm not sure of? I would say I really, really doubt it. Um, but if there's you know, the, the other sort of half of this question to me is, is it okay for us to keep dogs in a dog yard just so we can win a race for fun? Then I we're getting into an ethical ground there that I'm not comfortable with. I would say no. Um, and my, my opinion would be that even if they have to, you know, so even if our four racing dogs have to be kept outside so that we can gain 30 seconds on the race, that's not okay. That, that doesn't make it okay to win a ribbon. Do you know what I'm saying? I do. I know exactly. Yes. And I, I think that's true for you know, any working dog. I mean, if we have to, you know, put them, make them suffer some sort of poor welfare, just so that we have a ribbon at the end of the day, or we have, uh, you know, um, we win a trial or something like that. Is it worth it? For me, it wouldn't be. Um, if I think yeah. about my dogs, I mean, they are with me 24 hours a day. They sleep in the same bedroom as me and they're at my feet right now, <laughs> which, yeah. um, you know, when we're recording a podcast, maybe not the best because they might, they might, you might hear Mozzie groan while she's sleeping, but, um, you're yeah, right. I think for, um, for what we would be getting out of it, it's, I think there's an ethical, dilemma there for sure when you're talking I, I do i do think most mushers with a small enough number many mushers with a small enough number the dogs will be inside some or all of the time right yeah. um if you were somebody you're listening to this podcast and you're all of a sudden you know your 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 antenna are up and you're interested in um in these dogs or adopting a dog what would be the number one piece of advice you would give to somebody considering bringing one into their home um mm, yikes that's I, I would say honestly if they've already committed and made the decision that I want to bring a sled dog from a dog yard into my house, the biggest thing I would say is to really be careful that, about bolting. So sled dogs will bolt. Um, and by that, I mean, they'll, they'll run, they'll get freaked out and escape, especially if they're in a city environment, if they're not comfortable with it, they absolutely can adapt to a city environment, no problem. Um, and they can adapt to living inside almost all of them, no problem. But 
there's a, a moment in time, you know, which can last for a few weeks or a few months or, you know, however long that dog needs, where if something happens like a weird sound stimulus that the dog will slip their collar, escape and run into traffic or run away or bolt. And because they're so athletic and because it's their nature to run, they can, they can, you know, run and then they can be freaked out and almost impossible to sort of catch. So being cautious against bolting, I would say, like we used to make our adopters sign a separate contract just to sort of try and drive it home. And I've lost sled dogs that were in our sort of care in our rescue to bolting. And it's really, really, really heartbreaking. So I, that would be the big thing. And I, 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 I don't want to be like, don't get a sled dog because there's this potential bolting issue. But I do want you to be chilled down to your core. So set up things like um, put put up a temporary X pen around your door if you don't have an airlock in your door system. <clears throat> when you're out, make sure that their collar is tight enough that they can't slip it. You know, make sure that you know if you're using a, a harness, put another clip to their collar uh, for the first few weeks until you start to, you know, at, at some point the dog will be more yours than than new, and you will start to be able to have a sense about about this dog's safety and comfort and and sort of. Um, especially if you do recall training, which you definitely should with a sled dog. <laughs> um, but def so I'd say the bolting issue, the dog gets alarmed by something and runs. They can go over fences. They can go under fences. They can, you know, they're very, very, um, they, they're good at escape and they can really go and it, it, it will be very, very sad. So that would be my big thing. That was, a, um, a yeah, that's, sad, I mean, I true. hadn't even thought about that, but actually now that I think about it, there was a, one of these sled dogs, I think once it got adopted or moved in, I'm trying to remember moved into an adoptive home. I think it did, it did run loose and they were looking for it for a very long time. Luckily they did catch it, but it's exactly what you describe. Um, it bolted and was gone. Um, the one thing that I found fascinating about these dogs and working with them in shelter was that they in shelter were some of the hardest dogs to sort of meet their needs. They were very destructive. They did want to <laughs> jump their kennels. And once they got settled and they knew where their kennel was, that wasn't an issue. Um, and we certainly were very careful with them in the yard because they could have jumped the fence and left the, 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 um, the shelter's yard. Um, they, we did end up bringing in straw to bring, to, to put in for bedding because they were shredding everything we gave to them. They were shredding, but as soon as they transitioned to an, into a home, a lot of that behavior stopped. And so with most dogs, we would see that some of that behavior would carry over that if they were destructive in shelter, they were destructive in the home, but with the sleddies, that wasn't the case. Um, and so that was really fascinating. And the ones that we had, even the one, you know, one that lasted in shelter for, over a year, um, I went on to work with him um, in his adoptive home and he transitioned beautifully. And you would never have known um, just by looking at him in the adoptive home that he had these issues or that he came from the life that, you know, we're, that we're talking about. Um, yeah. And the stuff that I worked with him on was um, not even related to the behaviors from these things. So it was really fascinating actually to see just how well they did transition to a home. Um, that's, I, I, I absolutely would have seen that too. The really destructive nature of sled dogs when they're in a dog yard, they can chew their houses. Um, you know, they, they are, they can chew, they, they lick themselves and get granulomas. Like they, you know, they can just be like very, yeah, like destructive. A lot of, you know, I think they have a lot of needs physically and, you know, mentally that aren't being met 
when they're being kenneled and you know and then they get into a home and all of a sudden i think homes are really stimulus rich and also very comfortable so typically that just kind of goes away on its own there, there hasn't been really destructive sled dogs that we've had you know once they get into the home even in if in the, in the dog yard they're really really hard to house once they get into the home they're typically way easier as long as they're not confined but yeah yeah, there's they were just such fun fun dogs. They were super social with each other, loved to play. They were great with the staff. They had quirks. Some of them um they had suggested that we actually get them up onto a doghouse to like um put their harness on and things like that because that's what they had been used to and you know they were they were sometimes difficult to handle. Um, I think they weren't used to some of the sort of husbandry stuff that we would be doing typically with them. Um, but as soon as we did something that was familiar to them, like got them up onto their doghouse, then we could, we could, we could harness them and um, dog walkers could take them out and things like that. But they really were, um, you know, they, and I, I am, and I think most people know this, I am like you, I like a dog who dogs, who is very much a dog. And so perhaps that's what I loved about them. Um, but, uh, they will go down for me as some of the, the most amazing dogs that I got the pleasure to work with. Um, my sample size is small and I really appreciate you coming onto the podcast to talk about them. Um, before we wrap up today, if somebody's listening and they, you know, they say, well, like, you know, rescue is my jam and I want to get involved. How did, how can somebody get involved in, um, helping or working with sled dogs? Yeah, that's a good question. And I would say, um, so recently, the sled dog sort of oriented stuff that I've done is actually with the BCSBCA. They've had some, they're, you know, um, out of all of the organizations that I, I'm aware of, they're the ones that I think have put the most thought into the sled dog issue, and how to handle the welfare problems and, you know, thinking into the future about this. Um, but I, I'm not actually sure who I would, I would probably just do a Google. There's a couple of Facebook pages, like you said, said, um, so I would probably start out following those, just dipping my toes in and getting a sense for who are the the players in the rescue world with sled dogs. There's every province and territory in Canada has tons of dog mushers. I mean, I, I don't know about the Atlantic Canada, but you know, from, from Quebec all the way to British Columbia and definitely in the North, there are tons of recreational mushers. There's tons of sled dogs that are being produced that are, you know, going into rescue. Um, so there's, I think there's a lot of need for sure for, for good people <laughs> there. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, 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 I suspect efforts are pretty localized. So, you know, within your own community, um, ask around in the rescue world and, and see sort of who the players are. Um, so I, I sort of, I, I feel a little bit torn apart about the welfare issue um, because I know a ton of mushers and in lots of ways, they're kind of my people, um, but I don't agree with keeping dogs in dog yards and not having them have enrichment and not exercise. Um, and also I don't agree with producing that many animals just to cull them, um, you know, when they're, they're not sort of meeting your needs in an entertainment purpose, right? The, the dogs are, Sled dog races are not life or death. They are entertainment for the mushers and for the people who are watching. So, so I, I guess I sort of, I, you know, my fields are complex. I, I don't think that it's, it, it's not something 
I, I agree with the people who are criticizing dog mushers as much as I also sort of identify a little bit with them. Um, so I, I, I get it there's, that there's complexities, um, but I also think that this is something that I look forward to the dog welfare movement really marching forward and, and taking better care of these animals because, you know, they are, they're not working dogs, they're dogs. They're not sled dogs, they're pets, right? So, so I, I sort of, I, I think that the future is bright for this for sled dogs but you know i also feel a little bit of like oh uh, you know <laughs> mm -hmm. i do miss having five dogs in front of me on a sled and it's perfectly quiet and it's that blue winter light and all you can hear is the dogs panting and the you know the feet on the trail it's it is it's magical right um so it's a i guess it's a complex topic the the welfare question but i i, I do think that that we do need to put dogs first when we're when we're talking about all of these issues Okay. Well, thank you so much for talking to me today and for shedding some light onto these dogs. I mean, um, you know, they, again, they were a pleasure to house and so much fun to take care of. Um, but my sample size is small and I just, I love to get the, the backstory and find out exactly, um, uh, and find out more about them. So thank you for coming on today. And, uh, I know well, you'll be back for, for in another podcast. So thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Wild at Heart podcast. As always, you can find me on Instagram and Facebook at Wild at Heart Dogs, online at wildatheartdogs.com. I work primarily with herding breed dogs struggling with breed behaviors and reactivity, and I have a complete lineup of webinars, classes, and private virtual training options for clients. Artwork for the podcast was by the talented Ethan Beaudry, theme music by Adam Percy and inspired by Griff, our border collie. Sound editing and post-production was by Secret Clubhouse Sound on Denman Island. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And if you like the show, subscribe and follow and leave a review. If you have a guest you'd like to suggest, please reach out to me at wildatheartdogs at gmail.com. We'll see you next time.